This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson, and with this podcast, I share a variety of stories from the most well-known dynasty of them all, the Tudors. From simple stories about the people of the time to the drama that was the reign of Henry VIII, and of course, politics. This show is presented to you commercial-free thanks to my wonderful patrons. A big thank you goes out to my newest patron, Heidi H. All right, it's almost Halloween. Who doesn't love a good creepy ghost story? When fall comes around, all I want to do is watch scary movies and rehash old ghost tales. I'll give you all the creepy and scary as well as fascinating tales of horror at Tudor Court and a bit of history on Halloween. When we return. Welcome back. One of the most horrifically botched executions of the era was that of Margaret Pohl, Countess of Salisbury. The following poem was found in Margaret Pohl's cell in the Tower of London. For traitors on the block should die. I am no traitor. No, not I. My faithfulness stands fast and so. Towards the block I shall not go. Nor make one step as you shall see. Christ in thy mercy save thou me. Here's a quote from a guest post on my blog by Alan Freer called The Last Plantagenet. On the morning of the 27th of May, 1541, an elderly, stately woman walked with dignity, as befitted her birth, from her cell in the Tower of London. Her name was Margaret Pole. Margaret had been informed earlier that day that she was to die. Her reply had been to say that no crime had been proved against her. In an effort to play down the event, no wooden scaffold had been built. No large crowd of onlookers were to be present. Only the mayor of London and a few dignitaries were to witness Margaret's death. Margaret knelt at a simple low block of wood, which was to be her final pillow, and commended her soul to God. Turning to the thin line of bystanders, she asked them to pray for the king and queen for young Edward, Prince of Wales, and for Princess Mary, of whom she was godmother. With a final prayer, she placed her delicate royal neck on the block. The executioner, a clumsy novice, hideously hacked at her neck and shoulders before the final decapitation was accomplished. 
This version of Margaret Pohl's demise is not the only one available. In the much kinder version that Freer shares with us, it is believed that Margaret was hacked at 10 times before her head was removed from her neck. Yes, you heard me right at the beginning there. I said the kinder version, and here's why. There's a second version. That account is the one that really tears at the heartstrings. That account states that Margaret managed to escape from the block and was cut down by the executioner as she ran. In the account, it was also noted it took 11 blows to accomplish the deed. Both of the versions have one thing in common. Margaret was hacked at either 10 or 11 times. What a horrible way to die. Speaking of horrible ways to die, how about being boiled alive? Just thinking about it, I can hear the screams of poor Richard Roos. A statute was passed in England in 1531 by Henry VIII that made willful murder by means of poison, high treason, and punishable by death by boiling. It was the action of Richard Roos, cook of John Fisher, Bishop of Rochester, that prompted the measure. In February 1531, Roos poisoned the porridge of Rochester and his guests. But it wasn't only those in the household at the time who received the poison porridge, but also the poor who had gathered outside to collect alms. They were also given whatever was left over from the poisoned meal. All those that ate the food became extremely ill. And two people actually died. Rochester had not eaten, so he was spared. In his defense, Roos claimed that he had merely placed a laxative in the porridge and that it was meant as a joke and that no harm was meant. Richard Roos was charged and found guilty of high treason. His penalty was the newly instituted death by boiling. A quote about the event from The Men and Women of the English Reformation by S.H. Burke. He roared mighty loud, says an old chronicle, and divers women who were big with child did feel sick at the sight of what they saw and were carried away half dead. And other men and women did not seem frightened by the boiling alive, but would prefer to see the headsman at his work. What a horrific way to die. Now it seems plausible that sometimes when a person has a horrific death that their ghost or spirit may stay behind and haunt a person or a place. This seems true when it comes to Queen Catherine Howard. Catherine Howard, the fifth wife of Henry VIII, was executed by axe at the Tower of London. Her story is either seen as tragic or reckless. You can decide. When, in 1541, Catherine Howard's secrets came to light, the king immediately took action and asked for an investigation. You see, for those who do not know, Catherine Howard was the first cousin of Anne Boleyn. Henry's second wife, whom he had executed for adultery, among other ridiculous charges. The fact that there were rumors about Catherine's promiscuity did not bode well for the Howard clan, or for Catherine. When Catherine Howard was arrested, she was unaware of what was happening. She was confined to her rooms at Hampton Court, she was cut off from contact, and there was no music, no dancing, and I can only imagine fear and panic. Now one can imagine the young queen sitting in her rooms, mind-wandering, the terror of what it could all mean for her. She was aware of her cousin's fall and execution about a half a decade previously. With all that intense energy and emotion, 
is it any wonder that it's now believed that Catherine Howard haunts the gallery at Hampton Court Palace? When Catherine was arrested, it's said that she escaped from the guards and ran toward the door of the Chapel Royale, where she believed Henry to be at prayer. Catherine screamed for Henry's mercy to no avail. Henry wasn't even there. Today, the story goes that Catherine's ghost can still be seen running in the gallery at Hampton Court. Visitors of the palace have reported having strange sensations in that part of the building as well. The sixth wife of Henry VIII, Catherine Parr, is also known to haunt a couple of castles in London. Parr died of childbed fever in 1548 at Sudley Castle and is still seen roaming the grounds wearing green and appears to be searching for something. Some believe that she is looking for her daughter Mary, the child that she had with Thomas Seymour before her death. There is another account by a servant at Sudley, a Margaret Parker, who said that she saw a tall, beautiful woman in a long green dress looking out a window. Margaret Parker believed the woman was Catherine Parr. Catherine also makes an appearance at her former abode with Lord Latimer of Snape Castle. At Snape, Catherine evidently appears as a young girl with fair, long hair who wears a blue Tudor-style dress. Now this one seems a bit strange to me to be Catherine Parr. Why would she appear as a young girl at a castle that she only lived at when she was married? While Catherine Parr's death was not by execution, it was tragic nonetheless. Catherine was about to have it all. She married her great love, and they were to have a family. And it was all taken away when she died of puerperal fever in September 1548. The following spring, her husband was executed by beheading. If there's one thing Thomas Seymour could be grateful for is that he wasn't hanged, drawn, and quartered. This may be the most disgusting and inhumane execution method. It's clearly overkill to send a message to the subjects of His Majesty. To receive a sentence such as hang, drawn, and quartered, the person most likely would have had to cause high treason or a similar type of crime. On execution day, the prisoner was dragged behind a cart from their jail or prison to where the execution was to take place. Once there, the prisoner was hanged until nearly dead and then cut down. Their sex organs were cut off and the stomach was sliced open. Their innards were removed and burned before them. Finally, the head was removed and the body cut into four quarters. The victim's head and quarters were parboiled to prevent them from rotting quickly and were then displayed at the city gates as a warning to others. If you weren't killed by execution, there were plenty of other ways to die in Tudor England, like the plague or the dreaded sweating sickness. Next, I'll discuss the two and how truly awful they were.
my friend Susan Abernathy at thefreelancehistorywriter.com wrote this about the sweating sickness. There were outbreaks of the sweating sickness in England in 1485, 1502, 1507, 1528, and 1551. A sufferer of the disease in the beginning would experience a sense of apprehension, followed by violent cold shivers, then giddiness, headache, and pains in the neck, shoulders, and limbs, along with great exhaustion. Then the hot and sweating stage began. There was good reason to be scared of the sweating sickness. It came on without any warning and did not seem preventable. People would feel a sudden sense of dread and then be overtaken with headache, neck pains, weakness, and a cold sweat covered all over the body. Fever, heart palpitations, and dehydration followed. Within 3 to 18 hours, 30 to 50% of the people afflicted with this illness were dead. The final stage was complete exhaustion and collapse, or sometimes an irresistible urge to sleep. There was no immunity if one survived an attack, and some experienced several attacks before succumbing. If one could survive the first 24 hours, they usually lived. The historical records say Arthur Tudor, Prince of Wales and son of King Henry VII of England, may have died of the disease, leaving Catherine of Aragon a widow. The best friend of King Henry VIII, Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, had two young sons, Charles and Henry, who had died within hours of each other in the 1551 outbreak. Even Mary Boleyn's sister and King Henry VIII's great love, Anne Boleyn, suffered from the disease in 1528 outbreak. Even Mary Boleyn's sister and King Henry VIII's great love, Anne Boleyn, suffered from the disease in the 1528 outbreak, but managed to survive. These attacks would normally just last hours before a person died, and the cause of the disease was never found and never appeared again in England after it was last seen in 1578. Probably equally as terrifying was the Black Death, and while it wasn't around during the Tudor period, it's still a frightening reminder of how our health can change in an instant. Europeans were introduced to the Black Death, or the Great Pestilence, by sea in 1347, when 12 trade ships docked at Sicilian port. Most on board were dead, and those who were alive were gravely ill. They would soon die as well. On board were men covered with black boils that oozed blood and pus. It was eventually given the name Black Death. The Black Death knew no status. When a person became infected with this plague, they would die within a few days. It would begin with a persistent fever, followed by blisters and boils on the legs, arm, and neck that would weaken the victim due to the immense pain. So much pain that they became fatigued and bedridden. The boils would grow and increase in size until they were the size of an egg, oozing and seeping infectious fluids. Within days, they would be dead. Very few people actually survived the plague. The Black Death terrified people so much that they often abandoned family members and loved ones to save themselves from becoming infected. Many people died unseen, so they remained in their beds until they stank. And the neighbors, if there were any, having smelled the stench, placed them in a shroud and sent them for burial. The house remained open, and yet there was no one daring enough to touch anything, because it seemed that things remained poisoned, and that whoever used them picked up the illness. 
On an interesting side note, many scholars believe the nursery rhyme, Ring Around the Rosy, was written about the Black Death. King Edward III was the ruling monarch during the outbreak. His daughter Joan of England died from the plague on the 1st of July, 1348. Now let's look at the lyrics of Ring Around the Rosy again. Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Pretty convincing argument that that has something to do with the Black Death. So now we've come to the last topic of this podcast, the history of Halloween. Did the term Halloween begin with the Tudor dynasty? When we return. Over 2,000 years ago, the Celts celebrated Summer's End, or Samhain, on the 1st of November, which marked the end of harvest and the beginning of winter. The night before Samhain, people believed the dead returned as ghosts, by leaving food and wine on their doorsteps, that they would keep the ghosts away. They also dressed in disguise to blend in with the ghosts who walked among them. The Christian Church turned Samhain into All Saints' Day, and in the 8th century, All Saints' Day became known as All Hallows. That was when October 31st became All Hallows' Eve. If you're wondering exactly what a hallow is, according to Google, it's a saint or a holy person. During the reign of Queen Mary I of England in 1556, the term All Hallows' Eve was reportedly used. However, it was used in the setting of the church and not as a celebration, as we know today. Author Nancy Bilio wrote an article in 2011 for the website English Historical Fiction Authors and said the following. The first recorded use of the word Halloween was in the mid-16th century England. It is shortened version of All Hallows' Even, or Evening, the night before All Hallows' Day. Another name for the Christian feast that honors saints on the 1st of November. There is a similar statement on Halloween-History.org that states Halloween is said to have started as early as the 16th century. So now that I've covered the basics, let's discuss something that is a bit more familiar to us in modern day. Dressing up and trick-or-treating. I remember as a kid, my mom used to make our costumes. As a poor farm family, my parents did not have the money to purchase costumes for myself and my three siblings. It didn't bother me because I got to dress in disguise for the day and spent hours trick-or-treating in the evening. So, did the children of the Tudor period dress up and trick-or-treat like we do now? In the Tudor period, people would dress in costume and accept food, wine, money, and other items in exchange for singing, citing poetry, or telling jokes. It was called guising, and it originated in medieval England. Now that makes for a completely different kind of night. I'm just imagining somebody coming up to my house, ringing the bell, and reciting me poetry. (laughs) I'm not sure that I would give them any food, wine, or money, but I might need some wine afterwards. I often wish that I could go back in time and experience life at Tudor Court, If just for a day, it only takes a few stories about life in the 16th century England to quickly change my mind. 
hope you've enjoyed this episode of my Tudor's Dynasty podcast about the creepy and scary as well as fascinating tales of horror at Tudor courts, as well as a bit of history on Halloween. Thank you so much for joining me again. Until next time. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Wait, wait a second. You didn't think I'd actually forget to thank my patrons, did you? It's because of these wonderful people that this show is commercial-free, and without their generosity, the show would not exist. If you'd like to become a patron of my podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash Dynasty and click become a patron. For as little as a dollar per month, you can show your support. With that, thank you to Heidi, Jennifer, Shelby, Sari, Christopher, Sue, Johanna, Doris, Courtney, Anna, Bob, Diana, Rachel, Michelle, Lacey, Diane, Kathy, Katie, Joy, James, Anne, Azaria, Lisa, Nora, Sarah, Wendy, Mary, Cynthia, Melissa, Nicole, Mary T, Cheryl, Carrie, Tanya, Donna, Catherine, Jen, Laura, Megan, Pat, and Heather from the English Renaissance History Podcast. Thank you, guys.